This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is the WealthVest Bull and Bear podcast. It is October 24th, uh, and we are really happy to be joined uh, by Adam Parker, uh, CEO and founder of Trivariate Research. Uh, Adam, why don't we start off by you giving us a little bit uh, of your history going back to your Sanford Bernstein days and your Morgan Stanley days. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, uh, my background is I have a PhD in statistics. Uh, I was hired in the old days to be a, um, a quantitative researcher, and then I switched to being a fundamental analyst. So I covered the U.S. large cap semiconductor companies uh, as a fundamental analyst in the formative years. So, uh, you know, Intel, AMD, all the big chip makers. Uh, and, um, you know, in those days, um, you know, very fundamental research, tearing apart the p and companies, et cetera. Uh, I switched to being a strategist, writing quantitative research uh, and, and equity strategy, and then left to be the chief U.S. equity strategist at Morgan Stanley. So, as you know, that's uh, a much bigger platform, and, and, and I ran quantitative research there as well. And I sat on a, a seven-person asset allocation committee when I was there, uh, which in those days was only 17,000 advisors with two trillion under management. But it's gotten much bigger, gotten much bigger since they bought E-Trade. So, you know, I, kind of the point is I got a little bit more macro cross asset, you know, kind of involved in, in thinking about the full spectrum, not just U.S. equities. I, I had a four-year stint on the buy side uh, as well, kind of doing a lot of uh, work on risk management, position sizing, portfolio construction, and some single stock work. And then we started Trivariate Research about two and a half years ago. Okay, so let's go back to where we started here. Your days at Sanford Bernstein, that was always regarded as a kind of top fundamental research shop. You had a great strategist in those days in Vadim Zlotnikov. Who were your kind of mentors from a macro standpoint? And, and what, did, what did covering semis, and semis always being, or at least historically leading the global macro economy? So there's two questions there for you. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny, you know who Vadim is. Um, you know, I actually tried to replace him twice in his career. So he was a semiconductor analyst at Bernstein before me, got promoted to be the strategist, and I replaced him as a semiconductor analyst. And then uh, Vadim then went to the buy side, and I replaced him as a strategist. So I owe a lot of my career to his career progression. And he's one of the people that I would say, maybe is the single smartest person I've ever met in my life, or certainly a role model uh, on, in terms of, you know, non-traditional creative thinking. Uh, you know, if you ask 10 people the same question, he'll give you a different answer, not for affect, but just because he organically thinks of things differently. So he's certainly one of them. Uh, probably Michael Goldstein, who's got a very successful firm called Apilco Research, is another ex-Bernstein employee who's a role model of mine in terms of just taking information and processing. I mean, the point behind trivariate is macro, quantitative, and fundamental. Those are the three variables we're trying to look at to make informed decisions about U.S. equities. And I think you take nuggets from people like that and, and the DNA of Bernstein back when it was a bunch of wild, crazy, smart people as sort of the you know, inspiration for, for doing it. So, you know, you picked, you picked a, uh, um, a real, a real uh, role model when you gave that example. Um, and, you know, in terms of semiconductors, look, I think it's a great industry to fundamentally tear apart and then try to expand to something more 
hold this across the market. Maybe industrials, apart from industrial, would be another good one. Semis was great because you have some business models that are uh, manufacturing based and some that are you know, kind of outsourced to manufacturing. So you have some software-like business models, some kind of tr- classically cyclical business models. Uh, and I think, um, you know, economically sensitive businesses, global. There's a number of things about, you know, kind of carrying apart that industry that I think translates to being, you know, effective as a, you know, general portfolio, you know, manager or aspirational portfolio manager. So, yeah, that was luck. And, but, uh, you know, as, as all, all people my age will tell you, luck played a big role in their, in their career. Yeah. Uh, you know, it is amazing with semis. You look at some of the more cyclical aspects of that, you know, you look at a, a company like a Micron and, you know, you never, you never want to buy Micron on, on a PE multiple, right? Cause they're making 10 bucks one year, they're losing three bucks the next. So I've always thought yeah. it interesting to keep an eye on semis from a global <laughs> cyclical <laughs> point of view. No, that, that's true. And, but the reason that's true, and it's actually really timely, I just had an investor meeting before this conversation where we talked about um, depreciation. So when you think about cost, cost of goods sold, basically what you, know, you subtract from revenue to get the gross profit, there's only three things that really impact it. And it's, it's materials, labor, and depreciation. And that depreciation part is something that your average person doesn't think about very much. What Micron has to deal with is the fact that um, the tools they use to produce memory chips only have a three-year useful life. So when they announce a big capital spending program, billions and billions of dollars, um, they have to depreciate that all over the next 12 quarters, the useful life of the tools. And so if revenue decides to decline because of a recession, because they overshipped in a previous period, um, that depreciation or so-called fixed cost is still there. And so you could see the earnings collapse, as you alluded to, when that happens. And I think that's you know sort of an important and relevant um, example. It just happens to be, you know, a turbocharged example because the useful life yeah. of the tools is so short. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so I think when, when I talk to young analysts in this industry, I say, think about what could introduce volatility into the P&L, right? Not just what your base case for earnings is, but what could cause volatility. And when you have a depreciation or fixed cost burden as high as a business like that, it certainly, um, you know, can cause, um, you know, a volatile earnings trajectory. And, and you're right, it's a classic cyclical where you probably want to buy it when it's expensive and everyone hates it yeah. and, uh, you know, sell, sell it when their earnings, uh, you know, start picking up and start looking cheap. Yeah. I want to talk about getting valuations a little later in the conversation, but you know, there's so many Warren Buffett acolytes out there, but I feel like his messages around EBITDA and the importance of understanding uh, the cost of depreciation is one of those kind of Warren Buffett lessons that kind of gets unheated, you know, I mean, it, it is such an important topic, but I don't want to get, yeah, M- M- I don't No, no, Munger. We, we can talk about one second because you got me lathered up. I mean, Munger <laughs> is the best. Go to, go to YouTube. I think he calls it. Uh, I think, I think what Munger, who obviously doesn't care anymore and hasn't for a yeah. long time about what he says, I believe he calls EBITDA BS earnings. I think <laughs> yeah, that's right. what he calls yeah, it. Yeah. So, and yeah. I think, I think when, you know, when you have higher rates and you have higher cost of capital, a lot of these businesses have to refinance at higher rates. You know, not, I think it's by the genius of John Malone and cable or telcos or something where you got mm. people to value very capital intensive, very indebted businesses on EBITDA. So it's like not counting the interest expense and depreciation when those are massive portions of what matter. You know, I, I've always thought it was BS earnings. So anyway, you got me lathered up on that topic. Right. We'll talk about it more later. But I, I think you hit on it. You're, you're kind of a, 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 a um, you know, kind of a mind genius here. You're mentioning Vadim Flanikov and EBITDA and Micron and you're, you're hitting on a lot of my uh, my bugaboo topics here, so good for you. You're you're on fire. 
Well, you mentioned John Malone. I mean, I could always remember, I, you know, my Morgan Stanley days preceded yours and I was in investment banking there. And it was always the joke was if you're on the other side of a deal with John Malone, you're probably losing. Yeah, I've always thought you just kind of want to do what that guy does. He seems to, you know, listen, Quark guys struggle with his names, too, because there's tracking stocks and inside ownership. And you look at all these Liberty and Quark and all these things and, and, and you look at who holds them and there's always 350 million bucks of John Malone in there. So. <laughs> uh, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that one. Yeah. So well, one thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, you were a DOR uh, and I was in research management for seven years and absolutely hated it. Uh, and I wonder uh, how you think of this, this transition from sell side research to independent research. You have a lot of, you mentioned one of your, um, uh, one of your mentors or, or, or somebody who you uh, read who is an independent research provider now. There are so many high-quality independent research platforms. Could you talk a little bit about how that has occurred? Has sell-side research become less important uh, as independent research has grown? And how do you see that sort of evolving from here? I mean, I think there's a couple of things involved there. I think working at one of the big firms when you're young is great. You get great experience. You learn a lot. You meet some interesting people. But the career path can be challenging at, at those big firms. The firms have, you know, a bigness disease when they get big. And um, and so for people who really want to focus on content and clients, that can be distracting. I think the second thing is that, you know, some of the big firms, um, you know, they'll say, oh, our thousandth biggest client pays us a million dollars. Well, there's lots of, you know, room underneath that for independent researchers who don't need to get a million dollars from a client to view as a successful relationship. You know, our rack rate is 15K a quarter. We have lots of clients that pay us 60 grand a year. So we can go to cities that I can now go with more experience on the buy side and doing this business for a couple of years to see clients that in cities that I would never have gone to when I was U.S. equity strategist at Morgan Stanley because... If they only paid a million, I would never go see them. They pay 60 grand, I go there. So there's cities I can go to now uh, where we can get five, six meetings in. And so it's just, I think there's a lot of, I don't want to say underbelly because that has like a negative connotation, but there's just a lot of places that you can do business. And, and so I think that's part of it. I think part of it is, um, you know, what are people actually paying for? How do you monetize what, what they're doing? Um, and, and how many sort of fingers are in the pie claiming that they're the reason you're getting paid at the big firms. And so, you know, I think if you're me, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, 54 years old. I got a PhD, PhD in statistics. I would normally write the analyst. I worked at said I worked in the buy side. Like, I don't really want to work in a big firm anymore. I want to build my own business. And yeah. we really specialize in a couple of things that it's hard for me to do when I'm at a big firm. One is we have a lot of corporate business. We do a lot of work for law firms, boards of public companies, CEO, CFO, IR, treasury, where we really are independent. So if a company is doing divestiture, it's an activist, you know, one of the big firms report, reports on it, it's hard for that company or board to think it's unbiased. But for me, you know, hey, I'm an ex-Morgan Stanley strategist who's got a really good database and we're empirically studying the distribution of outcome and, and I'm unbiased. And the second thing we do, which I think it's hard to do a big firm, is we've signed over 40 non-disclosure agreements with buy-side firms, long only and hedge funds, mostly fundamental, but a couple of quants who send us their portfolio to do custom risk work. So I don't know if I would get people's portfolios and I would be doing the corporate work at a big firm. So I'm not saying... The big firms don't have a lot of awesome resources. I'm just saying there's things, a lot of things you can do as an independent, which are on, you know, truly uh, harder to do housed in a big entity. So I just, the two businesses yeah. that we're in, like I mentioned, I don't think a lot of people are going to send 
you know, I, I work at Morgan Stanley, you know, they're not going to send us their portfolio, uh, you know, a big long only firm. And certainly the corporates are getting advice from the bankers, but to the extent that they get some sell side analysis of Morgan Stanley analysts, they're not going to think it, it's unlikely to be inconsistent with the banker perspective. Uh, whereas, you know, as an independent, I can do that. So in my example, there's a concrete reason not to be there in those kind of businesses. But I think in other cases, just people get to a point in their career where they saved enough money and they're willing to kind of take a big pay cut and try to build something from there, as yeah. opposed to, um, you know, working at a big firm that could have all kinds of bigness disease. And, and this is all of them, right? Taxes on your time. If you think about all the things you have to do, whether it's, um, you know, MD and ED promotion or diversity oh, yeah. and inclusion training or money laundering videos or whatever. There's just, that stuff can give you 25% of your time. And when you're me and your mind's spinning a lot and you love equities and you like thinking about analysis and where, you know, all of our work's coded in Python, computer, we're just, we don't want to be distracted by that kind of stuff. We want to be talking to smart clients and, and doing bespoke research for them and, and publishing our content. So it's, it's, I think it's a combination of those things, but I would say working in, at one of the big places when you're young in your career is, is valuable. I mean, we all, we all did it because you, you learn how to think and you, you have role models and people that, you know, that's how you build the role models and the like. So I, I, yeah. I um, I'm not disparaging them, but I'm, yeah. I'm glad I worked there, but I, I love doing my own thing. Yeah. I mean, look, I was a political science major. I ended up at Morgan Stanley in private wealth. And what I started reading, you know, back in 95, I started reading Byron Wien and Barton Biggs. Yeah. It's probably why sure. I ended up being too bearish for most of my life, for God's sakes, because those guys, because <laughs> yeah. those guys were always the smartest guys in the room, but they were always bearish, or at least Barton was. Uh, but, yeah, but I you know, digress. I, but but I, I have some pride in the fact that I was a U.S. equity strategy at Morgan Stanley because of people like Barton and Byron, right? Like they made oh, that yeah. job and that seat a great seat. And I think, you know, the few of us that are still alive that have done it have a little bit of that alive presence vibe because it's a tough job. You know, you travel. I spoke at 44 conferences around the world in 2016 and I um, traveled for 30 weeks a year, right? It's a physical job. And so, you know, um, I think when you can do it for six or seven years, um, you learn a lot and you meet a lot of amazing people. But um, I think part of the reason I'm not still there is because it's impossible to stay there for 30 years doing that. You just can't run strategy, run quantitative research, run a, a weekly forum on any topic that's coming up and speak at 44 conferences on different topics. Uh, and remember, I'm not, I'm not flying on a G6. I'm, I'm going on Air China or whatever. So it's, you know, your life, you know, accelerates to the downside. You get fat and you, you're a bad, you know, spouse and a bad parent and all the things that come with that. So, you know, obviously being on your own, you can control your own schedule and it's more autonomous. Uh, so, you know, I could sit here as a 54 year old with that perspective. But when it, you know, it was an amazing job, but you can't do it for 25 years. Yeah. No, but that was my point. The, 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 the idea that, being the Morgan's chief of strategy at Morgan Stanley, following in the footsteps of those kind of legends of Wall Street, uh, that's that's a, that's a, that's an incredible title to have to have had. Um, let's yeah. just talk a little bit about you talked about. I don't know if you use the word quantumental. It seems like kind of a hacky term, but what is so different about Trivariate? You do have your quant overlay. You do have so much of your prop proprietary work that you do for smaller entities, not necessarily the fidelities of the world, but maybe large RIAs, smaller managers, smaller hedge funds. Talk a little bit about your stats background and, and your quant work that really differentiates uh, the offerings that you guys have. Yeah, I mean, listen, all those big firms are big clients of ours too. So, it, uh, you know, fidelity, yeah, yeah. of course, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'd say, 
I think our clients are in three buckets. And, and, and to me, they're anybody who cares about U.S. equity. So the big asset managers, the hedge funds, allocators, family offices, even private equity crossover funds. The second is the larger RIAs, um, you know, uh, some of the roll-ups that have a number of advisors, a lot of assets, they have a strategy at the top. Um, and, uh, and then the corporations, so themselves, the law firms and corporate. So those are our three verticals. Our research tends to focus on risk management, position sizing and portfolio construction, which is why I signed all those NDAs with firms that send us the, their portfolios. We do a lot of industry work from the perspective of the general. So all the industry work on the street, you know, comes from the analysts in that sector, but often is missing the context of, hey, is this interesting versus other industries if you're doing portfolio construction? So uh, a lot of um, folks like that because we can have ETF or basket by baskets to play that theme. So if we like energy or if we like semiconductors or if we like, you know, we want to be, you know, uh, short, uh, you know, U.S. retailers or whatever it is, they can embody some of those trades in ETFs and or, or baskets. We do a lot of frameworks for in, uh, investing, meaning, um, hey, you want to buy compounders? What is that? What is a high quality stock? What is a high quality low growth? So we'll offer baskets and, and, and that people can participate in. And then we do a lot of quantitative research um, where just focused on uh, management decision-making. So capital usage and its consequences. So buybacks, dividends, M&A, leverage. We just did a big, big note on spin-offs because spin codes are all the rage right now. You know, you've seen it with J&J, with Danaher, with General Electric. And I think the law firms are really giving advice to the boards on, on and the bankers too on spin-offs. So, you know, whatever, that's a big topic of ours. I've noticed that the word quant Tim is like a click repellent. So if I if I call something quant research, it gets less clicks. Yeah. If I call it, you know, management decision making, even though it is quant, I'm coding it in Python, we're empirically studying the distribution of outcome, we're accessing our database. You know, our database, the biggest 3,000 US equities, has hundreds of pieces of information that we're downloading or computing every day. Balance sheet, income statement, cash flow statement, valuation, accounting, ownership, sentiment. Crowding scores, company-specific risk rankings, quant model, all that stuff, Z-score. But so that's the power of the quant in our mind. It's empirically studying the distributions of outcomes. So like when I tell you I do work for corporates, let's say there's an activist and there's a spinoff and the Remain Co. has an activist and the activist wants them to spend nothing. The board can hire me to study how every Remain Co. in that industry toggled its R&D to sales and its SG&A to sales, which mm-hmm. ones maximize their EV so forward sales, you know, what's the right path based on the distribution of, of outcomes in the past. So it's quantitative it's a, it, for sure, but I don't call it that because that um, isn't sexy in terms of getting people interested. But I guess, you know, in terms of the distribution of your RIA kind of fans, I'd say we're on the institutional side, right? Like I think there's product that's newsletter. It's kind of, here's my idea. And then there's product that, you know, you're, I'm in, you know, the biggest funds in the world and the biggest hedge funds in the world, a lot of them are sending you portfolios just because they want kind of a quarterly stock process on any risks that are hidden in there. Or we're doing work for the boards and CFOs of big public companies. Many of them are huge public companies. So I think we're on the institutional end of the spectrum. Um, and so for your listeners who are kind of, you know, content kind of focused folks, I think we're uh, uh, prospects, but we're, we're not, um, you know, kind of in the, and I'm not disparaging these people because a lot of them have incredibly successful businesses, but there's people who sell for 2000 a year and they have 10,000 people paying 2000 a year and they have a great $20 million business, but we're, we're more of the institutional side in terms of the product. 
Yeah. For better or for worse. Yeah. yeah. And half of those guys are calling for the end of the world and buy gold anyway. So you only really only need a couple of those guys. <laughs> Yeah. And the other half like crypto and that's not my jam either. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, we don't do crypto. We don't do gold. We're kind of trying to figure out, you know, uh, can I buy energy equities for the next three to five years? Can I buy AI semi equities for the next three to five years? Why, why actually target stocks going in half or like we do those kind of things, not, you know, you know, three weeks of crypto. That's just uh, I, great. If guys can do it, it's just not what I do. Yeah. Are you a board API club guy, Adam? I'm sorry, say it again. Board API Club, the NFTs. Can't imagine you delving into that. Yeah. Yeah. No, no crypto punks. None of that's uh none of that's my jam. Uh but um, you know, I own I own like, you know, uh options in energy uh equities in my PA and that kind of stuff. I, I'm a big believer that um that uh, demand will exceed supply for oil. So like I try to where I can within the constructs of our compliance, uh, I try to, you know, uh, participate in the investment ideas I have high conviction in. But yeah, I, I really honestly focus on U.S. equities and things that you know, introduce volatility in equity. So I'll look at Fed fund futures, you know, obviously the slope of level, the curve impacts multiple equities, all that kind of stuff. But listen, I, when I worked at Morgan Stanley, we, we, you know, I just learned that really, really smart people can't call interest rates. So why would I be able to do it? Right. Right. So I think for me, impregnating an aggressive view of dollar rates, spreads, whatever, into the forecast just isn't fruitful. What I'm good at is saying, you know, which stocks um, will move the most if some assumption happens and what risk does that bear? Because a lot of funds, especially hedge funds, there'll be long stocks that have a negative correlation to inflation, short bills that have a positive, And then when rates back up, they lose money on both sides of the book. So a lot of it's more in that, from that construct, but I don't really focus on um things that don't make any sense that's i think that's a good segue uh so you know on your linkedin you talk about trivariates proprietary substance uh model and you guys might have a little bit of a variant to consensus so yeah if you could kind of go into your whole philosophy on that and why that might be that'd be that'd be excellent sure yeah um you know a lot of times we you know um smart people who don't have anything to do with wall street can ask you questions that really, you know, sink in. And um, my best friend uh, is is a um, head women's tennis coach at a major college. And he, you know, he's a stock junkie, whatever, trades around his PA like an animal. But uh, he, he said to me once, maybe four or five years ago, um, so, you know, what, what do you think matters for stocks? Like, I know you publish this stuff every week, a couple of times for years. What have you learned in the last 20 years? So it was like one of those basic questions, you know, over a glass of wine, catching up. And like, you know, I think what matters, to be honest with you, is three things. Some perception about growth, some perception about, you know, rates and, and quality, right? And some, some sort of kind of quality, yield, and growth, that cocktail is what matters. So he then said to me, so that's what all your quant stuff is. That's it's those three things. And I thought, holy crap, not really. Uh, <laughs> it's not parsed, it's not parsed that way. You know, we had like at that in those days, years ago, we had like a sector based approach and we pick winners from losers with each sector. And so we decided after that to um, rebuild our entire quantitative framework to embody the three things that I really felt like did matter the most in you know, a hierarchical structure 
And one of those you call, you said substance is what we call is our word for quality. So we tag each stock at the end of each month, each one of the top 3000 equities at the end of each month, back every month for 25 years into one of four quartiles, high, mid, low quality and junk. And we track the subsequent performance of each of those cores. There are regimes where knowing if you're junk or not can explain a huge percentage of your returns. For example, March 23rd, 2020 through June or July of 2020, or certainly the first three months after the financial crisis, the junkiest stocks went up the most. Why? Because prior to that, they were discounting a high probability of bankruptcy. And once it looked like they were going to go bankrupt, they go from two to 10 or whatever. And so when you have quantitative frameworks, you have to be mindful of that because you don't want to be short the stuff that goes up the most, or you certainly want to you know, risk manage around that. So we find it useful from that construct. But the other thing that matters is over time, especially you guys have a lot of clients who are low turnover, tax sensitive, want to hold stuff two, three, five years. The highest quality quartile massively outperforms the lowest quality. Most of that, or junk, and most of that happens in risk off regime. And so, you know, it's a, it's a discipline that you want to stick to. So we offer um, to clients a lot, particularly in the growth universe, the only quartile that actually sustainably outperforms is the highest quality quartile. So we offer a lot of clients baskets of quality growth stocks because that's kind of where they want to be as part of their exposure. So it's useful to do it systematically. I found through through the years that people will say stuff like, well, we, we even see when we, I told you the people's portfolios we analyze, a lot of times people say, well, we're, we're quality investors and I'll notice, you know, 40% of their growth is in the bottom half, you know, is in lower junk. And when you have that conversation with people, they often say, well, but it's future quality. You know, so sometimes <laughs> it's just helpful for people to kind of parse through, you know, in an unbiased way, because I'm doing it systematically. And, you know, we have um, a definition that includes, um, it's different if you're a financial or not a financial, it's different if you have a dividend or if you don't have a dividend, but it includes things like, you know, volatility and, and level of your ROE and, you know, turnover your shareholder base and, and you know, kind of, you know, the dividend payout ratio, if you, you know, how, you know, you don't want it to be too high because if you cut or cancel, that's not a quality signal or, you know, all the leverage you have on your balance sheet because obviously the more debt you have and the more debt that's due and, you know, that's, that's a lower quality signal. So stuff like we put this cocktail of metrics together. It's between eight or 12 metrics, depending if you're financial or not, dividend or not. And then we come up with this, this quantitative tag. So I think that substance thing is a super important thing for people to think through. But that was probably too long of an answer to a fairly short question. I apologize. Yeah, again, oh, again oh. you got me you got me lathered up on a good topic. So you guys are you guys are hitting on the good topics here. Well, well, well played. No, that's that's great. I mean, and you know, we just did a quarterly, you know, research um review. And one of the things we talked about a lot was when you look at unweighted versus equal weight, it's a very different story, right? With the magnificent seven. So any thoughts you have on market breadth and you know, you know, the equity risk premium right now would be would be fascinating. Sure. I've done a lot of work on those topics, as you can imagine. There were weeks where uh, those are the only things that came up in my investor meetings. Um, and I, I think I have somewhat of a non-consensus view on, on, in my mind, you asked two separate questions there, a breath question in the case for breath beyond the Magnificent Seven, and also the case for small caps. So I'll answer both, um, maybe uh, a minute or two on each, if you'll bear, bear with it. But um, on the first on the Big Seven, what I'd say is like, look, if I'm long only and I'm being benchmarked against the S&P, I probably want to own close to the market weight of that Magnificent Seven combined. Why? Because one, um, they have very little idiosyncratic risk. If I take my seven-factor trivariate 
company-specific risk model. I can explain 70% of the returns. What do I mean by that? Well, if I know if large beats small, growth beats value, and the market's up, I know a lot about how Microsoft did or Apple did or Google did. So one, they're really low IDEO. Two, they're covered by 50 to 60 sell-side analysts, and I'll say 4.2 million buy-side analysts. Uh, I, I, that's a joke, but let's say 5,000 by side analysts, right? So the odds that you, I mean, you seem like a smart guy, Drew, but the odds you know something that nobody else does that's not in the price, I'm going to be slightly skeptical, okay? <laughs> and then and then three, I can't really create a replication basket. So as a quant side of me, I'd say, wow, I don't have to own it. I can find 20, 30 securities that mirror it, but not really. There's no non-spurious, sustainably kind of correlated basket. So I got stocks that aren't replicable. I can't know anything about that nobody else does and are not really idiosyncratic. So the risk part of me says, take my alphabet outside the big seven and own those. Now, if somebody says, well, I love NVIDIA and I hate Apple, I'll be a couple percent over under within the 30. I'm okay with that because a lot of it's going to be subsumed by the growth value, large, small, et cetera. But I just don't really think that people should be making massive bets. And most people are really underweight because they have either archaic risk management where they can't own more than 3% of one name or they whatever reason. So most people have been underweight, the group, or they actively bet on being underweight by saying, well, I think rates will rise. It'll be bad for growth or whatever happened earlier this year. So I, the first question is, you know, I think it's, it's tough. And I think you should own a lot of the magnificent seven, at least the market weight. The case for breadth on that, in my mind, meaning that you have a broadening rally is a case that you think margins are going to expand more for the other companies than they do for those. And so again, we're back to depreciation, labor, materials, pricing, and mix. I don't believe at this point in the cycle that small cap companies have uh, <clears throat> better materials or labor costs. In fact, with, with wages increasing in a lot of the union places, with you know, oil up from the lows, I think it's going to be hard for a lot of small caps to have a lot of margin expansion. And they certainly don't have as good price in their mix. And if you look at the change in CPI versus the change in gross margins, you know, um, it, it really looked like the mega cap companies were pretty immune from rising CPI and the rest of them were not. It was statistically significant and negatively associated with their forecasting margin. So I, I kind of think it's unlikely we have a broadening rally in the near term. I think later in the cycle, when we get kind of blood in the streets, then you want to buy the small caps because they'll have more room for margin expansion in the recovery. But I don't believe that's the case right now. And I think it's a little bit of a contrarian view because I think people are looking at your, the first part of your question. I kind of took the two questions and parsed them. And they're saying, well, small caps look really cheap and equally weighted stuff down year to date. And they look 20-year highs on cap-weighted versus equal-weighted price forward earnings, so therefore, small caps are so cheap, but they're cheap for a reason. They have worse profitability, worse free cash flow, and when you kind of parse it by growth versus value, they're not really cheaper kind of unit for unit, meaning small cap and large cap value are cheap, and small cap and large cap growth are not really cheap. The high-quality large cap are more expensive than the high-quality small cap, but that's because they have higher profitability and higher free cash flow. So when you kind of adjust for the profitability, the free cash flow, the sector composition, et cetera, I actually don't think small caps are really cheap anyway. So my view is own market weight, the big seven, and underweight the small caps at this point in the cycle. But I, I don't think either of those are wildly consensus. At least that's the way I think about it. But you tell me if you disagree. Yeah, no, I don't think that's consensus. One thing I wanted to, and we can conclude with this, is if we're talking about free cash flow, and you mentioned energy, you mentioned there's going to be you know, more demand and less supply. And, and you look at the headlines today, you know, we are back to semis, you know, we are blocking semi-technology from going into China. China is going to block graphite exports from going into the U.S., which means it makes it very hard to build batteries. You have growing protectionism and you have growing protectionism 
that is making it very difficult for the energy transition to ever happen. And one of our core theses is that the energy transition is gonna take a very long time. And along the way, the whole global middle class is gonna need more oil. We may use less in the US, we may use less in Europe, but the whole world is gonna be consuming more oil. So we are very bullish on energy. So can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on energy, that return of free cash flow, and maybe a little more of an esoteric question, but to write into your bailiwick, is there too much energy efficiency? Are energy companies rolling over to investors who insist, you got to give me back 75% of the cash or I'm out? Is that stunting the long-term growth potential of the energy sector? All right, so just for your listeners, like I've never talked to Tim or Drew before this call. And, uh, and the reason I'm saying that is because um, I'm also wildly bullish on energy. And I don't want you guys to think that I uh, was influenced in some pre-call by these guys. Yes, <laughs> we, we, arrived, we arrived at the same answer. I think if we showed our work, it might be slightly different, but we got the same answer at the end of the page, right? So why? Um, you know, uh, yes, I think you, you nailed it, Tim. You know, I think supply, uh, you know, take the 119 largest uh, uh, semiconductor companies, uh, sorry, uh, energy companies, and their capital spending is top left to bottom right. So you're just not seeing as much supply on the horizon from the biggest energy companies. Meantime, demand for oil is ESG independent, meaning nobody has said, geez, I would like to fly somewhere, I'd like to drive somewhere, but I'm worried about you know, uh, what this will do to the footprint for the environment, so I'm not going to do it, right? Last year, as an example, um, was the biggest coal production and coal consumption year in the history of planet Earth, despite the fact that everybody knows that's not exactly clean, right? So let's go through some of the details. In the U.S., the installed base of vehicles is 8% EV or hybrid, and depending on which data source you use, 18 or 19% of new vehicle sales were EV or hybrid. Said another way, 92% use gas of the installed base, and 81% of the new sales use gas, including F-150, Chevy Silverado, which is the number one and number two selling cars. Tesla is number nine. Okay, so the point is, cars are born and then they die. They last 11 to 14 years, depending on if you're in uh, Montana, where the roads are icy and rough, or in Arizona, where it doesn't snow and they're beautiful. But the point is, you can kind of spread out for that half of oil consumption that's from autos, that peak oil mill will probably be seven or so years from now, plus or minus a year, okay? And then on the other side of that, they may able to slowly erode back to today's level. So I'm painting a picture where I'll have demand for the next 12 to 14 years at today's level or higher, yet CapEx to sales has come down massively. So yeah, the odds of demand growth and seed supply growth are huge. There's no question the global consumer will be spending more money on oil and oil-related products in the next 10 years than it did in the past. And that's gonna hurt some people's discretionary spend for sure. Um, I don't know what a six-month view because so many random things can happen, right? Um, you can have, uh, you know, geopolitical stuff like we've seen recently. You can have, you know, Vlad and MBS testing each other on something, you know, or whatever. I, you know, there's a lot of exogenous variables that can go out there. that can, but, but I think if you look at the demand supply picture, it's very compelling. It's imbalanced. And you don't have inventory like you do in other sectors, meaning the strategic reserve looks low, cushioning looks light, that kind of stuff. So, Tactically, on top of the structural, I kind of like energy because I feel like the energy equities, because I sort of feel like um, the estimates are, are lagging. Oil's already up. And we know the estimates are too low. Part of what I try to do when I have my strategy add-on is 
figure out, I want a long stocks where estimate achievability is above average and short those where it's below average. Well, I know the energy estimates for now are pretty achievable. The stocks are cheap, they don't have an inventory issue, and they're generally enough free cash. I guess the only thing that I might, I don't want to say differ from you on, is like, I don't know if the management teams are doing this because they're kowtowing to anybody. I think it's because there's pressure uh, from ESG's perspective not to invest. And so in a weird perversity, I actually think the more we get closer to California 2030 on vehicles and other stuff, it may make it harder and harder for people to justify funding projects. Because you've got, you know, you're Apache, you've got the Suridon project or whatever. Like you might say, well, you know, I need two or three years to invest and then my return has to be years four through 10. And that might start being when EV and hybrid starts really impacting the demand horizon. You know what? I don't think I should fund that because the return algo isn't there. And then all of a sudden, perversely, you have even less capex, but the demand is still there. And you could get oil going parabolically higher, right? So the clients I have that are like, I have a couple of family office clients that are like really rich, billion plus PA. I tell them buy 75, 100 million of actual rock and permian. Like you're going to get, you know, 1.2 to the 10th power for the next 10 years on that. And then you'll own 75 million, 100 million of real estate in, in Oklahoma or Texas, which will probably be worth more. I, I, I mean, to me, like the energy thing, I'm wildly bullish. It's my highest conviction investment idea. It has been since we started the business in, in 2021. It was awesome in 21 or 22, bad for the first six months this year, and then best performing sector again the last three, four months. And I, my view is it probably will be my best idea for the next 10 years. Uh, where it works 28 to 30 out of the 40 quarters, and I'm not going to be smart enough to figure out exactly which quarters to get out. But if equities go up 5%, 6% a year for the next 10 years, you should expect energy-related equities to go up 15% a year for the next 10 years. And if you don't own it, um, you know, I don't get it. Um, there are some large asset managers where the specter of gathering assets under an ESG umbrella are larger than the alpha they can generate by being in energy. So I get it for those guys, BlackRock, whatever. They, you know, maybe they they have those mandates, but I, I don't understand it. If you're, you know, um, if you're managing somebody's money, who's got 20 million bucks and they should want a couple million bucks in energy equities or energy and stuff for sure. They should. Yeah, no, I, I, mean, that's I, I my, couldn't that's agree my, more. That's my view. No, yeah, I mean, you know, you can buy companies, uh, they trade like tobacco stocks, but the difference is tobacco volumes really are going away. Oil volumes aren't. And, you know, you're going to pick up companies that are putting up 20% free, free cash flow yields and they're going to return most of it to you there'll be a day six or seven years from now maybe eight maybe six where on that day more oil was demanded than any day previously in the history of planet Earth. okay so you know you got to remember and that's a certainty right we know that from what's been purchased unless you jail or kill people for driving <laughs> gas related cars once they buy it it consumes gas for the rest of its useful life yeah right so i i just I think it's very unlikely. That, I think the demand forecast is pretty steady. I think aircraft demand, all that stuff's pretty steady. So I, I don't see a scenario where demand, um, you know, isn't you know reasonable. But again, you got a big recession here. Things can go wrong in a six-month view. You know, if you got something that was good for the world, like say a ceasefire in Ukraine, probably oil gets annihilated for those three or four weeks. I and mean, there's things that can go wrong. But I think if you stick with it over the longer term, it's just going to continue to massively outperform. Uh, and and so. Um, I think, no, I, everywhere I go, I think, you know, I live in New York. So there was a, some guy glued himself to the U S open tennis tournament in the women's final. And like, I'd love to go to that guy and say, listen, I get it. I'm, I don't, I, I'm, I care about the environment as well. Uh, everybody does, but like, what's the ubiquitous low cost substitute, right? Like we, let, let's, let's play this for real. Like why was coal the most produced ever last year? Right. It's not because people don't get the environmental issue. It's because demand for 
you know, energy related products is going to be pretty steady and high. You need some other way to substitute for it. So I, I kind of think um, the electrification theme is going to take longer. Some of the stuff you talked about um, beyond that in your question is going to be inflationary as well. So I, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. And I don't, I don't know if I'm preacher or choir, but uh, I'm liking the, I'm liking the, 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 the conversation. All right. Well, look, this was great. We all love free cash flow. We all love quality, real quality, and we love energy. I could do this all day, but we want to be respectful of your time, Adam. Congratulations yeah. on Trivariate, uh, and thank you for doing yeah. this. Thanks, yeah, Adam. It's a pleasure to meet you guys. Thanks a ton. All right. Take care. Take care. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.